When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holler at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. I used to sit down when I was revising and be like, okay, I have to change all of these things in the draft and this is going to make it better and this is going to fix the book once I sit down and change all of these things. And now every time I sit down, I'm just like, okay, if I can make it like 2% better than what it was, then that's a good draft. Like it just has to be 2% better. I don't have to fix every problem. I just want to make it a tiny bit better than it was. Hey everyone, you're listening to Human to Human, the show that connects truths and bridges the gaps between our human experiences, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Stacey Ike, and I'm really glad you're here. This episode's special guest is New York Times bestselling author of The Vanishing Half, Britt Bennett. Some of you may remember the day her book was released, June 2nd, 2020, the exact day that Black Squares became a phenomenon on the internet. Exactly. We talked human to human about how she felt on release day, and Britt was very, very open about that process. She and I also talked about the nuances of identity and how it translates in real life. We also broke down a few misconceptions about the entire creative process, which was an amazing part of the conversation. Now, before each episode, I give a few recommendations inspired by the conversation you're about to hear. I share a song to add to your playlist and a book to check out. I also share a reflection question based on something that was sparked by the episode, so let's get into it. This episode's song to add to your playlist is Have Mercy by Aaron Allen Kane. This week's read is, of course, The Vanishing Half. And after you listen to this episode, reflect on these questions. What do we do with the stuff that we inherit that becomes a part of us because of how we were raised? And what do we do with it once we have left that home behind? Don't hesitate to leave your response in the comments or at humanhumanseries.com. Now let's get into my conversation with Britt Bennett. guest, Miss Britt Bennett. Um, so proud of the work you've done. Um, the Vanishing Half has taken over and has been a part of an incredible year. Um, not only was 2020 a, a year that I personally read more than I've ever read for fun, but even reading things like this that have just really shattered the worlds and the conversation that I was having with personal friends and with family. It's been really amazing. So I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Um, I won't lie. There was the first few cha- first few pages, right? There was a sentence that was said in the book, and I think it was, you know, two daughters more perfect than their parents. What can be better than that? And I definitely put the book down. I was like, okay. <laughs> I thought it was going to be another sentence, right? And then it was that sentence, and I was like, I don't want to read this. I'm not. <laughs> and I like that you're laughing because you know that that meant that sentence. I felt your sarcasm in it. I felt the pressure in it I felt the um and I'm gonna do my best not to spoil the book too much guys but that sentence alone I just felt like yeah so what comes to mind when I just brought that up I mean I'm laughing because yeah I understand it's you know I knew that part of the project of setting up the book was setting up the ideology of this town which is a really horrible ideology (laughs) but you know I think that people who believe in terrible things obviously don't think that they are terrible and you know I had to kind of position you within the point of view of the people who come from this town who believe that this 
almost sort of genetic engineering that they are undertaking in their population is kind of the American dream, which is the idea that the children will be better than the parents in some way. But in the, this context, better just means lighter. Exactly. And that, that, that was the crazy part about that, that better means a lot of different things depending on where you were raised, right? Like for you, you I've heard that you said that your parents wanted you to be a lawyer when you were growing up. So better could have been you becoming a lawyer, right? Or the next best lawyer, the district attorney or something else. Um, better for me, I'm a Nigerian American. That could have definitely been being a physician, being a doctor, being a nurse, right? Like those things could have been better too. And so I think that's what struck me about that sentence because better meant so many things. Like you said, in this town, it was lighter. In somebody else's town, it's being married before her mom was or whatever. And so um, have you experienced those kind of things in your world in terms of what is better? Because obviously you did not become a lawyer. So what is <laughs> like with your parents? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, my parents were both uh, the first generation college students. Um, for So for them, that was what better meant was that they both went to college and their parents um, and their parents were unable to do so. Um, and then for me, they wanted, you know, they wanted me to not have to struggle as much as they struggled. They both grew up pretty poor. Um, so they didn't want me to have to struggle. And I think that's why they didn't want me to become a writer to, because to them that meant, you know, a life of being a starving artist. Um, so I think, you know, I was frustrated at first when I would hear them try to talk me into going to law school because I knew that I really did want to be a writer. At one point I realized that, I think, I, I don't remember where I heard this, but there was somebody, I saw this somewhere where someone was saying like, you know, your parents, your parents want what they know is good for you. That's not necessarily what's best for you, but they want kind of that sure thing in their minds. Yes. Um, and in my parents' minds, that was, oh, you go get like a real job and get a real profession. So I think eventually I had to realize it, it was coming from this place of love and wanting the safety and security for me that they had to really fight for in their own lives. But at the same time, I had to eventually just kind of take a bet on myself and, and, you know, feel free to kind of, yeah, charter this path that no one in my family had ever gone down before. Yeah, I think that's such a beautiful part of our evolution. I think at a certain age, we do think it's important to take our parents advice so deeply. And then all of a sudden, we, we, develop this self-trust that is more powerful than what the people who have loved us and love us still tell us what to do. Um, I definitely came to terms with, oh, you guys do love me, even though you told me not to move to LA and don't do this and don't do that. It's just that you want me to be better and well off. So I think that's a really important point. And I think a lot of people experience that, especially you know, if they're trying to become creative and their parents were not, right? Um, so yes. I wanna talk about identity. That was a really, beautiful theme in the book in in a non-judgmental way. I didn't really feel like you were writing these characters in a judgmental way. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't think judgmental writing is interesting writing. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't like reading books when you can tell that the writer doesn't like their own characters. Right. To me, it's just like, like, why do you want me to spend time with these people that you don't even like, is <laughs> how I feel. Um, so, so I didn't want to write these characters from a place of judgment. I knew that I was writing characters that were often making choices that would be offensive, uh, that would anger readers, that would upset readers in some way. And I was mindful of that. But at the same time, I, I didn't want to justify or explain their actions. I just wanted to present what they were doing and have you understand from their perspective why they were making these decisions. And even if you don't agree with those decisions, you maybe will understand why they, they've made the choices that they made. Right, right. So if you didn't judge any of the characters, did any of the characters surprise you? Specifically, I'm asking about Stella. Like, did her decision 
to deny who she was even after she was confronted by her daughter. Did that surprise you? I think, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that there were a lot of moments during Stella's sort of journey that, that really surprised me. Um, I knew that this would be a story that she would be the sister who passed, but that was kind of all I knew going into it. Um, so kind of every step of the way, all of these choices that she's making, the way that she kind of almost fades into this life, it's not something that first she is really consciously trying to do. When she decides to pass, she's doing it for a job and she thinks that it's kind of a temporary thing, but eventually that becomes her whole life and that becomes the most real thing to her. And I think that section was something that was surprising to me that that, that could happen to a person and, and, and be, be able to sort of supplant your reality in a way. Um, and I think later in the book, as you're talking about the way that she continues to kind of dig in her heels and dig in her heels about it. I, a lot of it was thinking about what happens in real life when people are confronted after having constructed some type of a, a lie or false narrative. And th there are some people who come clean and there are some people who will never admit that they did anything wrong ever. Yeah. And those people are more interesting to me because I think I would like to believe I'm the type of person who would just be like, yeah, you got me. I lied. Um, but, but, you know, the people who refuse to ever, ever admit they're wrong. I think there's something so more fascinating about that psychology to me. And I wanted to try to understand why, why would she continue to, dig in her heels and continue to sort of refuse to accept um, her daughter confronting her and other characters sort of realizing that she's been constructing this, this false narrative. That's so painful. Cause if you really do think about it in the relation to, you know, people in your world or, or people who are more interesting, there's such a false sense of safety in sticking to the lie. Right. And to watch Stella, but also in real life to watch us all wrestle with changing our mind right because it's just changing our mind it's so simple but really it feels like it's like but everyone's gonna know that I, I changed my mind and I think that was what gave me so much compassion for her because I was like yeah well for her she really just she'd rather you guys not know like she thinks that's protecting her even though you're like this is actually really horrible but you know so I thought that was really interesting what's your hierarchy of identity for yourself like do you identify yourself first as a woman as a black woman as a um, person from San Diego as the youngest as a writer how do you what's the hierarchy for you when something happens to your kitchen you might say this is ludicrous but that won't fix your home that will only get you the rapper ludicrous having trouble don't panic don't be alarmed you need to file a claim holla at state farm like a good neighbor state farm is there that's right you can file a claim on the app or call us thanks mr chris no matter how ludicrous the situation like a good neighbor state farm is there state farm bloomington illinois um, I guess I would say as a black woman, it's it. I can't really separate those parts of myself in any type of ranking of you know of, of race before gender, as people are off, always often and have for decades been contesting um, about those those rankings. Right. I think when I'm experiencing um, you know moving through the world or reading things or reacting to things. I'm always thinking about it through the lenses of race and gender together uh, because that's always been my experience. So I think that is kind of my primary sort of form of identity. I think I have increasingly become more aware of my identity as a Californian, as I have not <laughs> lived in California um, right. and things that always felt to me very ubiquitous. Um, I later realized were very specific to 
you know, growing up in a beach town in California, like, yeah, yeah, everyone has surf PE. And people are like, no, everyone does not have surf PE at high school. Um, so that I think that's something that I've wow, also become insane. increasingly. That is, wow, grew up in Texas. Yes. So not. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, yes. Good, yeah. Was there any part of that reality as like being your, you know, primary identity that has changed or expanded in the past 12 months for you? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. It's it's hard to think about uh, about that that sort of question of how I've seen myself and how that's changed um, how it's changed over this past month. Because I have I have been trying to think about it. I think a lot of it for me is also just my relationship to work and career. I think a lot of us are have been experiencing that during this pandemic because you know, prior to that, I, a, a lot of what I was doing was traveling and, and talking about my book. Um, and I've still been, you know, talking about my book on Zoom and everything, but the idea of thinking of myself as somebody who is on the go and feeling, feeling value from being able to do those types of things. And then that kind of receding, I think that that's something that I've had to confront sort of what it means to me to be productive or what it means to me to be successful um, or anything like that. Because, you know, a lot of ways this has been the, you know, wildest year uh, of my career in addition to just personal life, but I've experienced all of it from inside my home. And I've, I don't think I'll ever be able to truly wrap my mind around the dissonance of, of what that experience has been. Wow, that's a really good point. So while success was happening technically outside and you're inside without the cheers or the people or the massive hugs, did that change the way you saw success in a way? Or is that still something you're kind of grappling with? I think I think both. I mean, there's one side of it. I, I think for me, a lot of it was as as it became increasingly aware to me that there would be no book tour, that there would be, you know, at this at this point in which I'm realizing it, I think it was maybe probably early on, maybe like April, um, I had a conversation with my editor and, you know, cause at first everyone's like, yeah, we'll be in lockdown for, you know, it'll be a few weeks. And obviously <laughs> you and May, <laughs> exactly. And I was in New York at the time. So I quickly knew that was not going to be true, but, you know, realized it was not going to be a book tour. And I think at first I did feel a sense of, of, you know, sadness and grief surrounding that because so much of writing a book is something that you do alone. And the moment where you actually get to be kind of among the people is the book tour. Um, and I was looking forward to, you know, going traveling, seeing friends and family in all these places where I was going and all the kind of fanfare of publishing a book. That's like the one moment where you kind of have some type of community, you know, as a writer. So wow. I was looking forward to that. And I think I, I, there was a lot of sadness kind of surrounding that, that often felt very silly, you know, compared to everything else that was happening around me. Um, but I did feel, you know, that type of sadness. But on the flip side of it, there were also so many ways I felt like the people around me and my friends and family found ways to uh, to celebrate with me, even though they could not be around me physically. Um, I was sent so many bottles of champagne on via Drizzly. Um, I've sent so many flowers. Um, you know, I had people calling me and FaceTiming me and all of that. So I think it did cause me to reevaluate what that looks like, but it made me so grateful for the people truly in my inner circle who still found lots of ways to be supportive and to help me through what was just the craziest time in my life, um, even though they couldn't be with me physically. 
I'm so grateful for them too, because that creativity and the passion and the, and the, you know, their need to make sure you felt seen while still being far is, is amazing. I'm, I'm really grateful that you had them in your life as well. And I wonder, did that experience of hugs without hugs change what you see in the future or what you might need? Just like as a human, that, that satisfaction of the fans or friends, or do you think when your next book comes out or that next beautiful thing that we want to celebrate on a large scale, do you think you'll need the same things you did before? Or are you looking forward to kind of getting back to a normal version of celebration or are some parts of the normal you experience that you want to take with you? Like is sending flowers now going to be the thing? Like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know because you know, there's one, one thing that I've wanted to take away from it. It's just like, and always have wanted to, be mindful of this. It's just like, you know, you can't, you can't place like too much value in external praise. Yeah. And I think that's like true of life in general, but especially true of a creative life because it's all subjective. Um, you can't control the reviews. You can't control what readers write about you on Amazon. You can't, <laughs> can't control, you know, what people tag you in on Instagram to tell you that they hate your book. You can't control that. Um, so I don't, I never want to be the type of person who has to live for applause or anything like that. Um, but at the same time, I am, you know, looking forward to have agreed to some in-person events for later in the year or next year. So I am looking forward to being able to do these types of events and actually meet readers and, and sign books. I haven't signed a books for anybody for the finishing app. So I am looking forward to doing, doing those things. And, um, and, and I think also, you know, for me, the other takeaway was just like, as trite as it sounds, like in spite of all these sort of crazy career things that were happening, like when I think about that moment, the pandemic, I remember like when my friends, you know, surprised me with a zoom birthday party when I turned 30 and like sent, you know, massive amounts of alcohol to my apartment um, and all popped up on Zoom to surprise me. Like those are the types of things I think that really, um, that really meant something to me. Cause I was just like thinking to myself like, oh yeah, I'm going to celebrate this birthday alone in my apartment. Like this is how I'm going to turn 30. And, and that wasn't the case. So things like that, I think are the moments that really stood, stood out for me and reminded me, I think what I value most. That's amazing. And they take us further than the things that, you know, were quote unquote normal, normal. And I think that's yes. really, really amazing. But I do hope you get to sign several thousands of <laughs> books in the future. So that'll be really amazing. Um, again, I'm trying not to spoil things, readers and listeners. So please make sure that you do check out the book. Um, but I am going to bring up a theme that I thought was really important in terms of performance. As a writer, in a sense, you are performing as a TV host, as a journalist, as whatever performing. Um, I also want, I saw the versions of race performance with Stella, obviously with Desiree, um, performing motherhood with Adele. Like there were so many performances going on in one book. And I was like, this is really interesting. Are we always performing? Like I was really sitting there in inspection <laughs> of that. And I wonder for you, is there a place or a time that you feel like you're performing and where, where is that and what, what's happening? that you yeah. put it down. Yeah. I mean, I think frequently, you know, if not always, um, <laughs> That's so honest. you know, <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, I think there's, you know, the obvious stuff of like when we're working and as you said, as a writer, I do think that there's, there is performance that happens both on the page in a weird sense. Um, you know, I, 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 I find that that's kind of what I love about writing fiction is, the idea of being able to kind of throw your voice and to 
sound like somebody else or to sort of, uh, you know, inhabit the consciousness of someone so completely different than you. There is a type of performance to that, but like, you know, acting or these other types of performances, it often speaks to something that's very true, even though it's on its face false. Um, so that's, I think, what I, what I love about on the page. And then obviously like off the page, the idea of, you know, going on a book tour or having to do an interview or something, there's an element of that that is, um, that is also performing, um, where there's, there is, you know, again, some kind of veneer of, of falsity, um, to, you know, how you, the, the stories that we tell about ourselves. I think, to me, I think that was the strangest thing about publishing a book and realizing that I had to have a coherent story about myself to present because I had never thought of myself as having any type of a coherent life narrative. Um, And I still don't think of myself as doing that, but realizing that there is some way that you have to kind of translate yourself to somebody else and someone who's not like a friend or someone that you, who gets to know you gradually over time as we get to know people, but needing to kind of have like a package to give to people about yourself. And, you know, that was something that I had to kind of learn how to do and it did not come naturally to me. So I think there are a lot of elements of that uh, that, that are true of my life. But then more broadly, as you said, I was Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cut off? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Interested in these ideas of performing uh, roles and uh, races and all of these ways that these characters are having to kind of adapt and, and learn these new scripts for the, the roles that they're trying to play. That is so good. In 45 minutes, you and I are going to get to spend some time together. We're, we're both giving each other a package. Hey, this is Stace. Hey, this is Britt. Get to know me, blah, blah, blah. Hug it out. And then <laughs> it's, it's like, wow, that, that's the truth, right? And I want, how does that affect your relationships when you are meeting people gradually over time? Or when you, because I mean, that understanding to me, when I see, when I have a friend and I'm watching them in a moment of like technically performance, I'm like, hey, you don't have to do that. You know, take a second. Yeah. Be it's all good, and they're like, "Oh, what are you doing? Reading my soul?" I'm like, "Not trying to read your soul. Just letting you know you can be a person." You know, <laughs> like it's 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 a scary thing, and you never yeah. want to make someone feel like they have to break it. But I just that question to me, I mean that that theme was just so clear and under and yeah. deep in my opinion because performance. I think even the year we just gone through, we went through together. Now everyone's leaving with a certain. We don't know how everyone decided to evolve or not evolve yeah. and here together, right? So like now we're all going to join out in the street and do what? Like hang out like we, I mean, it's, it's I know. Weird. It's so- <laughs> it is weird. I mean, that's one of the things that I'm nervous about is just like, I mean, I know everyone's like joking about how we're all like emerging from our, our various caves as like these feral, you know, creatures. But I also am just like, I don't remember the last time I've really met a new person and been able to be real and not in like a professional capacity of we're sitting on zoom in this you know very unrealistic environment that would be different even if we were like face to face or like sitting having coffee or something you know but um um you know I do have some like some anxiety about that because I'm I know that I have experienced a lot of change in this year and a lot of people have and just the idea of meeting a new person and 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 feeling like you don't have to translate yourself or you don't have to present a package that you can just sort of be a person. That's the opposite of what I've been doing this past year on Zoom and what I think a lot of us have been doing. Absolutely. Okay, so do you mind you and I having like a superhuman human moment 
sharing something that was breaking for both of us that you don't have to translate to me. You just, what's something that for you is like, okay, what the hell's going on? Like within, like within what? <laughs> I was going to say within the past 12 months, but it could have been yesterday. I mean, it could have been, we yeah. are still in the moment. I also want to share, I have some anxiety about that as well. I'm a mm-hmm. human who's trying to figure out like, I don't want to be that no more. <laughs> I don't want to walk out. Yeah. And, and you know, there's just so many yeah. different now and um yeah a lot of changes and I I really resonate with that like the fact that we've had to put on for each other and try to be not we're not doing it on purpose but as humans we do try to make things as best as they present as best as we can keep the moments going but is it that you're like okay listen I just want to kick my heels off this is what happened (laughs) (laughs) because I got yeah (laughs) yeah I mean I think so and I think you know there's a part of me that wants to believe, you know, it's kind of almost the like New Year's resolution mentality of like, once we exit the pandemic, everything is going to be different. The thing that I told my friend the other night was like, you know, it's like, there's a part of me that's realizing that all of the problems that I've been able to pin on the pandemic for the past year, okay, now I have to kind of face that because I can't, Girl, it's been, you know, like, it's been easy to be like, okay, this is what's causing my unhappiness. This is what's causing my stress. It's, you know, and I've often tried to, you know, eventually be, be more patient with myself and be like, you're living through a global pandemic. It's okay that you are feeling X, Y, Z. And I still think that's all completely true. But that being said, I'm like, you know, reaching, we're reaching a point where no, I can no longer sort of blame any of my general malaise on this pandemic and then have to kind of face things that I've been able to look away from for the past year. So I think that that's another thing that I'm starting now to become, and I'm glad, I'm glad that that's the problem versus the just constant anxiety and dread about dying from this virus every day <laughs> like I'm glad to move on to like a more existential sort of question but at the same time it is a very real thing and and that's like I was kind of joking as I said it to him but I'm also like no but this is serious like I am you know realizing like okay here I am I'm still here with whatever problems are um vaccinated or not I still have these things that I maybe have not wanted to face and probably will have to at some point gosh so real a few days ago I said the same thing to myself I said all the things you said that like you were going to get done and (laughs) the world was stopping you or life Mm -hmm. or anxiety or whatever are those things still a priority and if so are you okay with them happening in the unknown up to whatever this next year right like this is not a now this isn't the pandemic anxiety now this is just life again we're back to life And life is going to keep doing its thing. And I guess mm-hmm. the hard part was to find out that it is a roller coaster all the time, mm-hmm. pandemic or not, um, pain or not, loss or not, death or not, um, you know, heartache, heartbreak. Life is going to keep being unknown. And I was yes. like, oh, look at that. That's, <laughs> like, I mean, that's wild. I literally, I mean, I yelled at my therapist. I was like, I'm, I'm confused. I thought you were here to teach me about certainty. She's like, oh, that's the, we're opposite. It's the opposite. <laughs> so it was a girl it was a moment for sure Mm -hmm. yeah I feel that wow wow well I don't know what your friend's response was but I'll definitely tell you that I am with you 100% and I think a lot of us are and I think sometimes we need to all remember that we're still unfolding whether Mm -hmm. you know however we go back to this life um yeah so thank you for sharing that but I, I know it took about four to five years from what I've heard for you to write the vanishing half what were some thing for some chapters specifically, or even some characters that you 
went through more than once. Like there, I'm sure there's knowing the town you were going to do it in that felt clear. Right. But maybe mm-hmm. other things that you felt, okay, this took a lot more fine tuning. Yeah. I mean, honestly, most of the book, I think all I knew going into it (laughs) was I knew the town where it was set. I knew there would be twins. I knew that they would live their lives on opposite side of the color line. And that was kind of all I knew going into it. Um, So from there, you know, I really, I originally thought the book would just be about those twin sisters. I didn't realize it was going to go into the next generation and their daughters. Um, I didn't know it was going to go into the men in their lives. Um, So the book just kind of kept expanding. I kept growing more interested in these other characters kind of swirling around these sisters. And and then I would start kind of being like, oh, well, what's going on over here? What's happening with this person? What's their story? And and then that kind of took me away from what I thought the trajectory of the book would be. Um, So it was a lot, it was a lot of having to try to wrangle the book into something that felt coherent and understandable. Um, The timeline of the book is non-chronological. So I, And I didn't plan to do that. So I had to try to find some way that readers could just follow where you were in time. Uh, And and yeah, I think a lot of it was just the book kept expanding in every way, both the amount of time that it it takes, the different geographical locations, all the characters, um, it just continually kept expanding, kind of growing away from me. So I think so much of the the revision process was like, okay, now I have all these like disparate pieces. How can I try to weave these together into something that makes like a complete picture? How many times have you read the full thing? Uh, I mean, do you mean the by the full thing? Do you mean like the version that you read? The version that, oh, dang, now I mean, yes, that is what I meant, but now I'm like, uh-huh. probably had so many versions. So yes, yeah. I read, yeah. Okay, the version that you read, uh, probably at least maybe three or four times okay. um, because I like to like go back and uh, read it out loud for one draft. I read the whole thing out loud. It takes forever, but I go through, I do that. Um, and then you had copy edits and like all these different points along the editing process. So probably about three or four times the version that you saw. Um, but yeah, of course, before then there was a million versions of trying mm-hmm. to get it to that point. <laughs> What was the process of tuning your self-trust in, in, in writing that many versions, right? Because as a writer, a, part, a lot of it can be lonely. I'm not sure how many other people you allow to check out your writing during that time besides editors. So I'm not, first, I'd love to know, like, how many people do you actually send drafts to that you fully trust and know your writing and know your voice enough? And then if not that many people, what was your personal self-trust process? Yeah, I mean, I think for one, this process was different than my first book because my first book I wrote while I was in school and uh, I had it workshopped by like my classmates at Michigan. So, uh, you know, I had 11 people reading it and giving me feedback. This was a much lonelier process because I was no longer in school at that point. Um, But I do have two really close friends that I met at Michigan who read a draft of this book and gave me feedback on it. Um, and I had my agent who read it, my editor read it, um, and they gave me feedback too. Um, so I, I think a lot of it was learning how to trust myself, learning, I, I think realizing that I had never done this before, you know, I, I was kind of beating myself up over it because I was like, well, you've written a book already. Why is this so hard? And then my friend was like, well, if you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. 
participating McDonald's. You've never written a second book, so that's why it's hard. And that was true. I had never done that. So once I realized that, that this is a new thing, it's not what you have done before. Every book teaches you how to write it. You have to kind of go through that process to learn. Once I realized that, I think then I was able to relax a little bit and kind of roll with the punches and, and, and you know, continue on. But it was, uh, it was a pretty, I mean, the way I experienced it emotionally was, was pretty arduous. I was talking to my editor about it and she was like, I don't remember it being, you know, a difficult uh, process. And I was thinking like, well, yeah, because you were the editing me. Well, yeah, you were editing the motions. You weren't having to be there. <laughs> yeah, like I'm sure it was lovely, but for me, it was not. I, I saw some of my old emails the other day where I was just like completely despairing by her edits. And I felt like I was never going to figure it out. And I was so down. Um, and I remember being in that headspace of feeling like I was never going to get it together. So there were definitely some, some difficult moments with this book, but I'm glad that I stuck it out. I'm glad that I had, you know, close friends and trusted colleagues who helped me shape this book and, and push it to where, you know, to the version that, that you got to read today. Yeah. To that point of that feeling of never feeling like it's going to be done, because I think a lot of us experience that in different things that we work on. Is there one piece of advice that you're like, this helped me get over the hump? Or is the truth just, hey, life will push you over the hump eventually? but we just got to go through the, the pain and the, and the <laughs> turmoil of what it is to be creative or to even create anything. Yeah. I mean, I wish, yeah, I wish I had one piece of advice. I think each project is different. I think, you know, for, for the vanishing half, I don't know what was the moment that things clicked. I remember for the mothers, it was, you know, there was a character who was just kind of floating around the book who was pulling the book apart. And once I got rid of that one character, the book, got tighter and it improved the um and that was gonna be like dang who was it but i know i know it was, there was a uh so the the main guy in the book he had a brother and the brother was kind of instead of the book being centered on a love triangle it was kind of a love like rectangle right. um and there's a reason why you don't see love rectangles they're not interesting <laughs> um love triangles are good because two people are fighting over one thing and one of them is not going to get what they want. And that's why we love a love triangle. But once I realized that I had, I kept I fighting it. Girl, but I feel you. I'm like, <laughs> I hate, in real life, they are not. They're sorry. bad in real life. They're, they're great in fiction. But watching you like, oh my God, girl, pick him. No, pick him. Are yes. you? Yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> they're, they're very useful in fiction. They're, I mean, they're like obvious, but that's why they're obvious is because they're useful. Right. Um, so for me, once I figured that out, I was like, oh, just let me, what if I got rid of this character and it became a triangle? And then and the book just opened up so that was like a moment of figuring that out but that was like seven years into writing it um and the vanishing half um uh, I don't remember that moment I remember it being the type of thing where I was just working away and working away and I sent a draft to my agent and she was just like oh my god it's fixed like you did it and I didn't know really what I had done to to kind of do it but it really was just kind of trucking away at it and and trying to make each draft a little better than the one before that's amazing. It's scary because like to her point of being like, you did it. And you're like, I did what? And yes. That's for a long time and, and try to pick it apart. And I wonder if, I mean, a, a part of our journey is also feeling like, and I thought this in some of the characters too, going from right or wrong to right versus right to writer. Writer's not a word. Mm -hmm. I use it, you know, right to writer, to writer, to writer, to even better versus mm -hmm. ourselves as humans and saying like, that was wrong. And now this is right. Yes. Do you see yourself um, having that same ideology when you're 
just evolving as a person or even as a writer, the, the wrong versus right? Or have you allowed yourself to go right to writer to writer? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that that is uh, a healthier and more productive way to, of thinking yeah. about it and in life in general, but I think especially with writing because there isn't really wrong in writing, you know? <laughs> like, uh, you know, there, it's, not, it's not that what I was doing before was wrong. It just wasn't working in the way that it could have worked. Um, but I think one of the things also that I feel like I, as I've grown from book to book that I've sort of brought into it is just the idea of, I used to sit down when I was revising and be like, okay, I have to change all of these things in the draft and this is going to make it better and this is going to fix the book once I sit down and change all of these things. And now every time I sit down, I'm just like, okay, if I can make it like 2% better than what it was, then that's a good draft. Like it just has to be 2% better. I don't have to fix every problem. I just want to make it a tiny bit better than it was. And that to me has been much more helpful um, and better psychologically, but also better creatively than sort of make, trying to make yourself believe that you're going to wave a magic wand and fix every you know, because every time you make a choice in the book, it leads to another choice. If you have just sort of opened up a new path, which doesn't mean that you've fixed everything, you've just created a new set of possibilities for yourself, um, which are also could be really good possibilities or also less helpful possibilities. So I think that's been part of what I've tried to sort of embrace as I've moved on from book to book is just, I'm not gonna wave a magic wand and fix everything. I just need to set out to try to make it a little bit better than what it was. Y'all, we really have to internalize what you just said. Like that was really, that's a good universal hug that we should really be giving each other, right? There's no, it doesn't go from this to, to uh, or yes. let's say it doesn't go from zero to a hundred. I know that, you know, mm -hmm. he told us it is, it does not. Anyway, um, and so mm -hmm. it's amazing to remember <laughs> that going from zero to one, from one to five, five to six is okay. Mm -hmm. I think that's really, yes. really powerful, especially walking into this new year. Like I said, a part of my personal anxiety was, do we go back to like thinking this is productive? Cause like, I can't go right. back. I, I really prefer not to. And so it's really good yes. to hear that in your process as well. That's amazing. Um, what have been some personal experiences with colorism or passing that you've had? Now, I want to ask if they affected some ways that you wrote some of the characters, but I first just want to know any stories that come to mind of just your experience with it overall. Yeah, I mean, I think the passing piece of the book, um, a lot of that was thinking about, you know, I remember watching the movie Imitation of Life with my mother when I was a kid. Um, and that was really the first thing I ever saw on passing. I don't think I knew what passing was until I saw that movie. Um, and I remember just being really confused by it because I didn't, I didn't know that it was a thing that you could do or that you would want to do. Like it hadn't really occurred to me at that point to really, you know, understand like, why would someone not want to be black? Like that's the thing I didn't really get. Um, and um, and I think that speaks to a lot of both when and I grew up and also, how old was I? Yeah. I was in elementary school, I would say. I don't remember exactly how old I was, but maybe like fourth or fifth grade or something. Um, so I think that speaks to kind of how I grew up and also when I grew up, to be fair. Um, but um, so I remember that kind of being my introduction to passing. And for colorism, like I, I don't remember learning about colorism. I just remember always picking up, you know, picking up on uh, these things, you know, the, the sort of information that you receive as a child about, you know, who's considered beautiful, who's desirable, who is considered, you know, better. Um, that was something that I just remember observing around me. You know, I grew up 
in the 90s and you know the beauty standard was like Halle Berry like I was you know Tyra Banks like I was able to see that and be like oh this is who is considered beautiful this is you know and and those I don't remember ever like somebody telling me or explaining this to me but I do remember just like picking up on those cues around me um and you know I imagine I mean maybe not I think maybe for kids it's maybe a little bit different with at least the internet and social media and being able to see lots of different bodies um but you know not to sound like an elder millennial but like yeah back in my day um you know it was just mass media (laughs) we didn't have you know it was just mass media and who and that just meant basically who white America deemed acceptable um and and that was basically just you know very sort of light-skinned black women are seeing who's you know who's in music videos and who gets to be the love interest in the music video versus who's the girl who's just like you know naked dancing um that was also like a racial or not a racial but sort of a, a colorist kind of spectrum so I remember sort of picking up on a, a lot of those things as a kid and 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 sort of piecing together this hierarchy um and and uh and realizing how charged it was emotionally and I think that that was one of the things that I was thinking about as I was working on this book was how do I how do I write about color in a way that's not purely ideological or intellectual and write about it in a way that speaks to the emotional charge of of experiences with color Oof, and that emotion can vary from so many different places, things, and highs and lows. I mean, especially watching how each character really, um, I don't want to say performs in that case, because it really was emotional. You see a lot, of, especially um, Adele, I, I just had so much, like, I had so much love for her, but I was mad at her too, because the mm-hmm. parent plays a huge role, right? And then mm-hmm. you hear why and how she tried to love, and you see her fall, mm-hmm. see where she had, she where she tried. Mm-hmm. like but you missed the mark I don't, I don't get yes. it so it's like it's <laughs> so interesting everybody loves mcdonald's fries so yes you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home um but the bag did feel a little light Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. um i was having a really amazing conversation with my sister about representation I actually would love to get your perspective on it did you feel like you grew up with representation first in film or movies or television and then in writing that's interesting i mean i it's it, i guess it's hard because i only have like the only experience i have is what i grew up with and again i don't know what it's like for kids growing up now and what they are seeing and experiencing um, I remember these, you know, moments of like seeing uh, black girls and black women. Like I was talking on Twitter the other day about cartoon characters, and I remembered like Susie Carmichael from the Rugrats. Um, and um, it was the type of it's the type of thing where like there was a way in which I maybe felt represented by someone like her because she was a black girl, she had braids, but also she was so like she was like the most competent character like she she had everything together and I just remember thinking to myself like I'm not that like I I'm more like you know the anxious Chucky Finster who's the little red-headed boy full of anxiety like I felt like I had more in common with Kev although I looked of course like Susie I just knew that I was not competent and cool like Susie um so I feel like there were these, these moments of seeing these characters um, and I, and I, you know, remember, you know, seeing these, uh, seeing these black and brown characters and media watching 
you know, all the shows on, like all the black shows that came on UPN. That's what um, I'm saying. That's yes. what, that was that's exactly what the first, yes. I love that it. was a heyday. That yes. Was- I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, used to, my parents would always have us watching, you know, all the black like documentaries and like the black made for TV movies about the civil rights movement. Uh, we would watch all those things. Um, so they were definitely, I think, I think I, I felt I felt represented, I think, in a, in a way, or I, I knew where to find it, I guess. Like, it wasn't that it was everywhere, but I knew, like, what shows had Black characters or where I could see Black people, and I was, like, tuned into those mm-hmm. things. Um, and I think it's similar with books, you know? I felt like we basically never read Black people in school, but my parents had, you know, bookshelves full of Black writers, and that was where I read, you know? I don't, I don't remember reading really any black text beyond like maybe a raisin in the sun like I don't even think we read beloved when I was in school you know so right. so it, you know if it had been up to that I would have never had read black people uh, but it was my you know my parents um and when I would go to the library I would check out books about black people so I think in a sense I felt represented I knew where to find the representation if it was not readily available to me um but then I suppose maybe if like you have to maybe if you have to like treasure hunt to seek it out, then that's a sign that you aren't. (laughs) So um, I think a lot of my experience has been both knowing where to find it and also seeing myself or writing myself into spaces where I was not allowed to be. And I think that that's also, you know, an experience I think of being marginalized in some way of being able to try to like identify across difference because you kind of have to, you know, in a way. So I think that's a long, messy way of answering your question, I suppose. No, it's, it's I think, it, but it is a, it's a truth and it is a messy truth because there are people who say that they didn't have representation in the same, let's say we're both 30, we're both born mm-hmm. in the 1990s um, or 1990. And so I loved every UPN show. Like I mm-hmm. watched, um, um, oh my God, one-on-one heavily. Mm-hmm. That was yes, my jam, loved right? It. There's somebody yes. else who's like, actually, I never saw that show. And mm-hmm. they were born the same time as me. And um, I'll bring up my sister's uh, perspective was that she thought maybe it was a class thing or maybe it was just mm-hmm. like how you were raised. What's the parenting? Mm-hmm. What's important for you to see? And I thought that was mm-hmm. so interesting because there are so many discussions of representation now. And you wonder, like, does representation is a decision of representation based on who's producing shows or is it the home and how you were raised and what was important in that home, which, you know, is why reading this book, I was like, really where you're raised? It just has a lot to do with what you think. And yes. it won't ever, I'm ner- I wonder, do you think it ever goes away? If that's rooted, does it, do you get to leave it? Yeah, I don't know. I think, um, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that was one of the questions that I wanted to think about because in the case of somebody like Jude, I think when I first started working on her story, I thought that most of the story would be based on her growing up in Mallard and quickly realized that that was both like just really excruciating to write and also excruciating to read (laughs) Um, because you know from the opening of the book that it's life is going to be bad for her there. Um, So I had to ask myself like to what end am I just showing the kind of endless pain of her living in this place and later realized it was more interesting to watch what happened when, when she physically leaves this place behind, but still kind of carries that town with her on the inside. Mm-hmm. And to me, you know, I think a lot of her journey is about trying to figure out, is there a way to like divorce those things? And I think that's something that we often are all thinking about, like carrying with you, 
for good or for bad, you know, there's a lot, I think that was good about the way that I was raised and, you know, my parents, you know, the fact that, like I said, I found passing to be unthinkable. I mean, I think that's kind of a testament to how my parents raised me. Um, but, and I'm grateful for that, but there are a lot of things that we kind of, you know, take with us from where we grew up or how we were raised. Um, and sometimes these things that we want to leave behind and we find it difficult to leave behind because there's some way that it kind of embeds itself in us and perhaps it becomes something that we then pass on to somebody else. Um, so that I think is one of the trickiest things is like, what do we do with, you know, the stuff that we inherit or that we, you know, that we sort of, that becomes part of us because of how, how we're raised. What do we do with it once we have left that home behind? I'm leaving a moment of silence because I have no idea. <laughs> like, it's like <laughs> what do we do? What do you do? And then how do you relate to other people? You know, because it's, yes. if, if we have that experience, then the person you meet in any room is also having that experience. And it's two people trying to figure out what experience matters in this moment, right? Like, what do I bring from wherever I came from? How was, how I was raised, what I was praised for, what I was clapped for to this mm -hmm. space. And I have a, I have a huge compassion for us in this moment trying to relearn and unlearn some things. And yes. So that to me, I think this book is really powerful in that space. And I want to, you know, kind of wrap with asking, what has the audience been like for you? Has it been a lot more, or I guess, what have the readers been like? Has it been young? Has it been older? Has it been black? Has it been white? Um, because I saw a post that you did about how some white people have reacted to black books, <laughs> you know, books written by black people in the past yes. year. And they've said, okay, we found the book and this is going to be our saving grace. <laughs> it's going to be our thing. And then they don't really read it. And that's yes. how I feel when I went to see, um, oh gosh, it's slipping my mind right now. Oh, Detroit. When I saw Detroit, mm -hmm. I was highly upset because it was a really excruciating, wonderful film that black people already knew the pain of. And when I looked around and didn't see white people in the theater, I was upset. I was yeah. like, I don't need this information today. I need you to read it, you know? And yes. so when I saw that post that you did, I was like, wow, I really resonated with that. And I wonder how have you been um, experiencing that? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, you know, the audience has been, you know, I think as broad as I can imagine. Um, I guess mostly women, I will say. I don't know that I've, I mean, it's, it's again, it's hard because I haven't had like an event. So I can't be like, this is who came. But as far as from social media and the people who talk to me, it's mostly been women, which was true of my first book. Um, I, but I think, yeah, it's been people, lots of different racial groups. A lot of like, the, I mean, when the book first came out, the average person tagging on Instagram was probably like a, a 30 to 40 year old white lady. Uh, and um, that was probably the average person coming to it. And I think what, what was difficult, you know, what I tell people is that my book came out the same day that people were posting black squares on Instagram. It was like such a specific moment in where we were. Um, and One second. I remember that day. Yes. Very, yes. yes. <laughs> me. Woo. That was a day, girl. It oh, was a day. Oh my God. Brett. Yes. It was a day. Yes. I remember, <laughs> I remember it well. Um, but that was the day the book came out. Um, so there was such like sort of intense, um, you know, intensity of emotion that everybody's feeling and social media stuff was intense and there were a lot of you know halfway through that day the kind of conversation went from like the black squares to like let's support black artists and then there would be people tagging me in that of like oh this book just came out today let's support you know this person of course I'm happy to see the support um but there were also a lot of people that there was kind of a tone of 
either self-congratulation or just this, you know, the, the one that always got me was people who were like, you know, I have, I haven't read a, you have to admit, I haven't read a black book, um, in, you know, five years, but I bought this one. Um, and, uh, you know, and my feeling is just like, whatever brings you to the book is fine. And I'm, you know, I'm happy that you bought it, but also like, maybe don't tell me that you haven't, <laughs> that like, I don't think I need yeah. yeah. Like, I don't really need to know that you don't read black people, but you made an exception for me because, you know, gesturing vaguely to the country being on fire. Yeah. Um, so. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You know, I think that with that, like, what am I supposed to feel after that? Yes. Yeah. I I felt that of kind of like, I don't know what you want from me in that moment. Um, And, you know, I knew, but again, like it's, you know, what you're saying with the movie that you saw, it's the type of thing. And I think the experience that I have often as a black person who is frequently in spaces with lots of white people, which is that feeling of like, they're talking about you, but they're not talking to you. And the idea of you tagging me in that post, that's not for me. That's because you are performing for your white followers and friends and demonstrating to them that you are a good white person because you bought this black book. It has nothing to do with me, you know? So it was the type of thing, I think realizing it makes made it a little bit more frustrating, but also allowed me to truly like wash my hands of it and not, not feel emotionally anything about it because I realized, you know, they're not talking to me. They're not talking to other black people. They're talking to white people. And this is, the book is like a conduit for that. And there's something strange to think about that, you know, to have spent four or five years writing a book and then it comes out and suddenly it becomes a symbol of something that's, you know, completely different or something that you didn't imagine in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I was glad to see people turn to books because there could have been so many other things that people rallied around in that moment. The idea that everyone was turning to books for some reason, I think was just cool in a year that, you know, bookstores were struggling and, and you know, writers were not going on tour. All of that I think was, was good. Um, but I did feel ambivalent about it. And I still do of that kind of feeling of the book becoming representative of, uh, you know, of, of white people wanting to impress other white people yeah. by their sort of social awareness, um, because I, that's not why I write. I don't write so that white people can feel good. You know, I don't, I don't write so that white people can convince each other that they are good. I write because I want to tell interesting stories, and I hope that whoever from whatever racial group or other ethnicity um, just enjoys them as stories. Mm. So when will it feel less performative for you to actually join the conversation. I love that note of they're not talking to me, they're talking about this, but they're not actually talking to me. So will there be something that you hear and you're like, oh, I can tell you're talking to me now and you wanna be a part of the conversation or are you truly, do you feel better to just be kind of out of it? You know, the work is here, but you're not here. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I get that. That's that's (laughs) self-care. What you just said is self-care on a high high level because yeah. yeah. 
I mean, honestly, I've just disengaged, I think, because what I tell people often, like there are people who are interested, there are black people or people of color who are interested in educating white people. And they are both qualified to do that work and hopefully compensated to do that work. Mm -hmm. And I will direct you to any number of them as far as who, who you should go to. Um, to learn. But, you know, I, I've, I've been asked in these events of, you know, well, well, you know, what, what do you have to tell white people? Or what do you want white people to take away from this? And it's just like, to me, this was always a book that was about conversations between and among black people, you know, colorism is a, is a topic for black people and about us. Um, so that to me was never one that included white people, really. And I never thought of this book as really being about white people that much um so i think for me a lot of it has been kind of disengaging and you know what i ultimately hope for is i hope that white people when they're talking to each other like talk to each other and kind of leave me out of it because yeah. i remember my friend was telling me about he had a friend who is white and who put all of his white friends on like his close friends list on instagram and when he said that, I was like, hey, why did you do that? And my friend was like, well, that's where he shares like all of his anti-racist resources so that his black friends or whoever, they don't have to like, when they're scrolling Instagram, it's not for them to learn, right? So they don't really have to see it. They don't have to, they don't have to engage with it. They don't have to kind of watch him undergo this public education that a lot of white people are very painstakingly undergoing now in public. Um, instead of making his friends of color see that, he puts it so that all his white friends see it and only his white friends see it. And I was like, yeah, I actually think that's kind of clever. Like, you know, that's who the resources are for. So I, I think that's kind of my feeling is I've ultimately sort of disengaged. Um, and, um, and, you know, and like I said, I'm happy for whoever comes to the book, but I always tell people that I'm not qualified or interested in teaching. And, I don't think that that's what fiction is best at, it's teaching us. I think that fiction is about exploring lives other than our own. And if we learn something from those lives, that's great, but they're not, you know, they're not sort of how to be a good person type of books. And I think reading in that way does it, does it a disservice to yourself, the reader, but also to the book that you're reading. And, and, as a, and as a distance to it, because you're supposed to, not supposed to, but there's an enjoying factor of someone's mm -hmm. life and story versus, I'm going to take this and now figure out how to make it a thing that I now know and know how to do in front of other people. Yes. Back to the performance. Exactly. It does. It does. It centers you in this, this strange way um, of kind of taking other people's lives and boiling them down to like parables. Um, and there's something I think kind of dehumanizing about that to kind of iron out the complexity of a life and simplify it in the, in the way that it only exists to teach you something. Um, I think that, you know, often you see that happening in, you see it happening in a lot in lots of different you know communities I think particularly when you think about ability like the way that um that people who are able-bodied are often looking at people who are disabled as inspirational or this is what this person is teaching us about how to persevere or you know this type of of um really ableist language that pops up of taking a life that is interesting and complex on its own and just boiling it down to what it stands to teach you um, so I think that's something I think I think a lot of, you know, readers don't realize that they're doing that. But I think it's something um, that I also increasingly tried to be mindful of, of when I'm reading characters who are really different from me in some way of not centering myself in that story and instead enjoying my my time, you know, experiencing these other lives. Wow. I think a lot of the reason we do do that first is the conditioning of thinking like, 
the conditioning and programming of this person's different, right? The word different that we continuously use and then somehow praise and then take, it, it's weird, but then also not feeling enough by knowing what we know and always feeling bad and not like a good person to your point. And uh-huh. be, I, cause I'm like, I'm hearing that. I'm like, even as an able-bodied person, when you watch somebody else's story, who's not able-bodied or, you, or you're listening to somebody who is hard of hearing or whatever. Uh-huh. And you're like, Oh, I'm now taking their, I'm, I'm, I can have a conversation with them versus like, I get to admire their world. And it's, wow, I'm really sitting with that because a part of me just feels like we all think we're going to be better people for doing that and finding out like none of us are. <laughs> and that's just, that's hard. <laughs> like, I, I'm like, what do we do with that? That is, yeah. yeah I hope. Yeah. I, I mean, it's uncomfortable. I do think it's uncomfortable. <laughs> um, but you know, like I was reading the book Detransition Baby uh, by Tori Peters the other day, which is a really fun and repulsive read. It involves uh, a transgender woman at the center of it. It's transgender community in New York. Um, and you know, as a cis person, I'm like, I kept having to check myself um, for moments in which I was centering my own experiences as I was kind of allowed, the book allows you to, you know, experience a community that you may not be a part of as a cisgender person or someone who's not based in New York or whatever way in which you're different from these characters. But like, that is the enjoyment of the book. Like, it's not about me centering myself and my experiences and my thoughts on gender and my experiences of gender. Although it did prompt me to reconsider and and think about what, you know, what does it mean to be a woman? How have I how have I constructed my own gender identity and the way that as a cisgender person, I rarely, if ever, think about, you know, like that was, I think, the most disorienting experience of reading that book of being like, oh, let me now pause and think about how I have constructed my identity because I have done so as consciously as this character who's a transgender woman, but I've never had to think about it because of my, you know, privileges as a cisgender person. So I did have that experience in reading it, but ultimately I, I, you know, to me, I was like, I had to keep checking myself of like, this isn't about you. (laughs) This is, um, you're reading about particular and specific lives and a very particular and specific um, situation in this book. And also a writer who's who's uh, writing masterfully with a really propulsive and exciting voice. And to center my own experience or like that, the, 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 like the importance of this book is that it taught me about gender. Like, no, that's not, that's not the experience of it. The book is just like funny and good, you know? <laughs> so I I'm, I'm don't mean to be on a high horse about it. I just think that um, to me, it's something that I try to continue to remind myself of just how can I read more insightfully and read more critically, I think, um, is something that I continually um, ask myself. And that's not always about, you know, let me read, you know, books that are going to be really challenging and dense. It's just, how can I become the best version of a reader that I want to be? I think that that's something that I would love to, to see us have conversations about that of just like, how can we read well and not just you know, are you reading these books that people say are good? That matters so much less than I think being a critical and, and intelligent reader. Girl, I'm checking myself as you're saying that. Like I'm <laughs> some discomfort because I'm like, wait, this is real. I think we all, I mean, we are holding on to our worthiness any way we can, right? And we just, we're always uncomfortable. And so we're always looking for the common thing that makes us a better person. And so for you to say that, it really, I hope it jolts other people as much as it just jolted me because that's a moment I'm like okay what am I currently reading am I reading it for any other reason than to enjoy yeah delighted by the story versus how can I like 
wow, I'm really sitting with that. So do you, do you feel like there's a common thread with all stories or do you genuinely feel like, no, there doesn't always have to be? I mean, I don't think there always has to be, but I think, you know, I think there's another thing that when I was teaching, I would teach this essay called The Banality of Empathy. Um, and it's by Namwali Serpel, who's a really great novelist. And she kind of, I would teach it to my writing students because she sort of picks apart this idea that the reason why it is good to write or read is because it allows you to like walk in someone else's shoes. Um, and that's something that we always say and, and think, and I think to some degree believe as writers and Hold readers. Ourselves. Right. Yeah, but she talks about the way that that can be a very selfish endeavor because the idea of you still inserting yourself in that other person's shoes instead of merely kind of experiencing what, what their world is. Like there was still a way that there was something very self-interested um, about that kind of positionality of this is the value of books, you know? So it's a really challenging and interesting essay that, that I love to assign to my students and I love to revisit, but it's something that I think challenges me too of, of you know, because I think the act of writing fiction is a very presumptuous act of saying that I'm going to write from the perspective of people outside of myself. I think there is something that's very presumptuous about it. Um, but that kind of question of, am I just putting myself, you know, Brit, this is who I would be if I were in this situation, or am I experiencing what that character is experiencing in that situation? And I think those there's a slight difference between those two things, but I think it's an important difference and what we as the reader bring to books. Another moment of silence, y'all. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm, I need to go back through my reading list and just making sure I am not doing the selfish thing. That is really okay. Um, Sorry guys, I'm, I'm a little stunned. I'm a little stunned. That is, it's just a truthful, it's just a more, we just, we gotta be willing to pull the bandaid and unlearn some things and remind ourselves that our third grade teacher who told us to walk in someone's shoes, it's okay, that's not true anymore. We yes. don't, we actually should walk in our shoes, own and respect and love and honor the shoes we're in while we yes. own respect and honor the shoes of the people next to us. Yes. That we can walk away with. I love that. Okay, I will lastly ask you, how can we read well then, Britt? <laughs> I mean, I think, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, I think for one, I think it means reading what you want to read. Um, and that's something that I miss from being a kid, I think, where I read so widely when I was a kid. I read everything. I read, you know, mystery, science fiction, all these different genres. I had no like snobbery about me um, when I was a kid because you're not a snob when you're a child. Um, and I miss that because now I do, you know, find myself like, is this a good book? Like, what were the reviews? What are, what do my friends think of it? I find myself asking those questions. So this is for me saying to myself as well, which is just reading widely and reading what you want to read. Um, and I think also just reading um, in a way that I think that's critical and thoughtful and, and engaging. I, I love hearing from readers who have intelligent uh, things to say about the book, even if it's different than what I intended as the writer, or if they read it in a way that I was not expecting them to read it. I love hearing readers who have like an interesting insight on the book or they bring something to the book in some way that's different than what I imagined. So I think all of those things I think are, are important to reading well. Um, but I, you know, I, I hope, I, I think my favorite readers to meet really are the people who say, you know, I haven't read a book for fun in years, or I haven't read a book for fun since I was in school, but I read your book. 
Um, or the pandemic version was I have not read since the lockdown <laughs> and I read your book. Um, and I, I love those readers in a way even more than the people who are voracious readers um, because it means a lot to me that this is someone who maybe reading does not always come naturally to or they don't always love reading but they still loved my book in spite of it. They wanted to read it in spite of it. Um, so I think those are the big things like reading widely, reading what is exciting to you I wholeheartedly believe in quitting books when you don't like them. I know some people are like completists where they have to. Right. No, I don't believe in that. Life's too short. I'm just like, if it's if it's not for you, it's just not for you. And sometimes it'll find you at a different point in your life. There are books that I felt like I couldn't get through. And then years later, I picked them up and it was like the book met me at the right moment. So I think being open to those types of uh, acts of those moments of serendipity in your reading life, I think also are very important. Is there any fear with, if you read what you love all the time that you miss out on other things, specifically white people? <laughs> I mean, not, not just white people. I mean, even black people reading something you love yes. all the time and it has the same type of, you know, theme. Yes. And you don't expand to a certain, you know, is that? I, I think a bit. I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm torn to answer this because Dang. there's a part yeah. of me that's like, yeah, again, life's too short. Read, like if all you want to read is romance, then read romance. Like, you know, why, if all you want to read is sci-fi, read sci-fi. There's a part of me that feels that way, life's too short. But there's also a part of me that you don't know sometimes what you'll like until you experience it. And you may think, I don't like books about X, but then you read that one book and it opens something for you. Um, so I would say maybe honoring what you enjoy, but also keeping an open mind to what you may enjoy that you haven't yet discovered. Now that's the beauty of nuance people. <laughs> like that, that's really what it is. Um, Britt, thank you so much. This was incredible to really be able to dive in, not only with the book, but just past the book and some of your personal perspectives in coming to this work and this piece. So thank you so much for sharing yourself with me and sharing space with me for the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And a huge congratulations on your HBO deal. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of an exciting things coming. I'm, I know that's a process, so I don't think there's a lot you can share, but if there is, feel free to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. No, we're still so early in the process, so nothing, uh, nothing crazy has happened yet, uh, but it's, it's exciting and um, I'm looking forward to seeing what the writers come up with. Yeah, and remember, you've never been an executive producer before either, so there's That's also true. grace there. For yes, you. thank you. I appreciate it. I need it. <laughs> You're welcome. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, leave a review, and while you're at it, share this with someone you love or just someone you like as long as you share it. Stay connected between episodes at humanahumanseries.com where I'll be answering this episode's reflection question. You can also stay connected with us on IG at Human Human with Stacey Ike, or you can find me at One Take Stace, not one like the number one, one like the only one. I'm your host, Stacey Ike, and remember, we are not what we do, we are who we choose to be. So. Let's be curious, let's be in community, and let's stay connected. This episode was produced by Stacey Ike and Tracy Lincoln, associate producer Davis Ike, audio engineer Jarrell Jones, and special thanks to our guests and the entire team at Stacey Ike Inc. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's.